Hey y'all, We the Black People is back. Happy New Year. And we're starting the new year by talking about the Black Cooperative Movement, which is something that's often overlooked because it wasn't one kind of long and sustained movement. But when you look at the depth of what Black people managed to do during the movement, it's incredible. And to look at this movement for what it really was able to do in its time, this episode is both a historical retelling of the Black cooperative movement and a philosophical examination of two of the Black cooperatives in the book, Dreaming the Present, Time, Aesthetics, and the Black Cooperative Movement, by my guest, Professor Irvin Hunt of University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And it turns out the Black cooperatives that we're going to talk about look less like expensive grocery stores and a lot more like the mutual aid groups that these last rough couple years have fostered. Let's get into it. The Black cooperative movement is definitely not something I've heard talked about, I've seen written about. It's, it's definitely just like an understudied aspect of Black history. So I just want to open with the question, like, why are we talking about the Black co-op movement today? You know, when I started this, this project, I was grieving a slew of deaths by, by the hands of state, by the hands of the police. And I needed an alternative to hope. I felt like the hope that I had placed in the kind of social movement engagement where you're demanding from the state the things you need. Like that hope for me had just completely dried up. It just so happened that while I was in that kind of emotional space, I discovered this history in these old black magazines about what they were calling a cooperative movement in the early 20th century. And it's just coincidental, almost cosmic, that the kind of hope that they were giving me and the kind of hope that they were using was not this hope of like, let's climb to the mountaintop, not a hope invested in, you know, progressive politics where we are going to make some concessions and some compromises and then eventually get to somewhat what we want and with the, with, with, with the help of the state. It was a kind of something I would call like a now hope something we can do right now with the resources that we have right now to get what we want and, and to fulfill our needs. And I think we saw that during the pandemic too. People using mutual aid groups to say, you know, um, or especially during um, the floods in Texas, people used mutual aid groups to bypass just the, the bureaucracy and the racism that often comes with state support. Pooling our resources to, to meet our needs and distributing it according to need is something that is actually flowering. We don't hear it on the news, but it is also, you could call, another movement that's, that's rising in parallel to the movement I traced across the, the 20th century. It doesn't invest in these big ideas of a future utopia. It says, what can we do right now? And that kind of now hope is something I think helped me breathe a little easier, a lot easier as I was writing it. It's not about like 
what can we make the politicians do? What can we make the establishment do to make our lives better? It's about like, what do we have and what can we do? Like, how can we come together with what we have to make right now better? It's just like beautiful. Yeah. I'm thinking about what we have as abundant rather than scarce. That scarcity issue really gets in the way of, of what we think we can do. I mean, if we approach something from a place of deprivation, we're already, you know, foreclosing like possibilities. But if we approach it from a place of abundance, we're like, oh my God, look what we can envision and look what, look what can happen today, <laughs> you know? Ella Baker wrote down once in in one of her newsletters to her her cooperative group, the Young Negroes Cooperative League. She was like, this is about the here and now. And then she capitalized here and now, like in all caps. And, you know, it was like, this is a new social order. I mean, that's what that's 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 often even that's even a quote from one of um, the black magazines talking about we're talking about a new social order. We're not talking about just bending capitalism. It's not just about stores and farms. It is like a very radical social movement and kind of like a covert radical social movement, which is like part of what's so interesting about it. And I guess probably why it's like understudied. That's right. That's right. But like when I think of a co-op right now, I think of like this expensive grocery store in my neighborhood that I walk past when I'm going to Safeway because I cannot afford to shop there. (laughs) So... (laughs) Like when we talk about the black co-op movement, yeah, what are we talking about? Yeah, yeah, and that's and that and that's that's funny too because I I when I started this project I, and I was and I was reading through these magazines talking about cooperatives, I was also thinking about the stores in Morningside Heights that I I couldn't afford to shop in and like co-op apartments I couldn't afford <laughs> to rent from, and just it just seemed really odd that this was a kind of way of meeting people with meager means. Um, so we're, we're, we're talking about essentially a pooling of resources. That's essentially it, okay? And the idea that, that the business, if you want to call it a business, the farm, the school, is owned by the people who make it. That's the first thing. And then the second thing we're talking about is a distribution of the surplus, the profits, you could say, to the people who are also making that business happen in proportion to the work that they've put into making that business happen and also in proportion to the needs that they might have. And sometimes not even participation. People in Fannie Lou Hamer's farm, you know, they didn't necessarily come to the farm and, and pick vegetables. They just came to the farm in need, and she was like, "Yeah, take take these sweet potatoes, take this okra, like like you need it." Like, you know what I'm trying to get at too is that we're also talking about a new sense of time. We're also talking about a new way of thinking about who we are in the present and and time unfolding. How can we expand our sense of the present so that it isn't just about this place where we get mired in pragmatics and have to, and ultimately really just need to think about the future. Yeah. Cause as much as your book is about the black cooperative movement and specifically like three specific black cooperatives, time is like a big part of it. I mean, from the beginning, from the opening, you were talking about like hope in the now and like the here and now all caps. The main question of the book became, how do you make a movement without trying to make 
a better tomorrow? What happens when historical progress is no longer really the kind of narrative that these people want to write? The present is not just like this moment sandwiched between the past and the future, but as like a moment in and of itself to think about, to like consider differently, to be in and to fix without expecting it to have like ripples forever. But just like right now, let's address the right now. Yeah. To further understand that, let's get into the movements that you talk about in the book. Particularly, I guess, since your book is about time and rethinking it, we're not going to start, we're not doing this chronologically. We're actually going to start with the last movement in the book, which is when you talked about Fannie Lou Hamer and the Freedom Farms. So I guess to start, just tell us a little bit about that movement and then we can get into the way that it rethinks time. Fannie Lou Hamer, I mean, the expansiveness of Fannie Lou Hamer is just mind blowing, but I I think I want to tell this from the perspective of what I knew about Fannie Lou Hamer coming into the book and then what I learned as I researched. So like, you know, I knew Fannie Lou Hamer, like I think a lot of folks knew her, you know, she founded the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964. I knew of her testimony at the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City in 1964 when she was trying to integrate the Mississippi Democratic Party, who was refusing to seat any Black delegates. She took the stage and testified to a beating she endured simply for doing a voter registration drive, a beating in Winona where she uh, she was brought into a jail and assaulted and suffered permanent kidney damage and lost sight in one of her eyes. And she gave this Oh, God, this like brutal testimony that just sort of captured the national attention to the threat, you know, just 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 the violence that folks were experiencing for simply exercising their right to vote. And that testimony helped integrate the Democratic Party and all of these things were stuff that I I knew of her and especially her focus on electoral politics is just trying to do as much as she could with electoral politics to sort of expand black representation and and meet black needs. But what I didn't know was as I as I researched, I didn't know that she had a band known as the Hamerettes and she toured across the state from 1968 into the 1970s with these folks. I mean, I knew she was a singer. I didn't know she had like a whole singing troupe. But especially what I didn't know was how much work she put into creating what would become known as this freedom farm of 680 acres. And and, um, Keisha Blaine has recently reported that it was even bigger than than that, um, that it was over 700 acres. But but the point is, is that she created this freedom farm cooperative between 1968 and 1977, when she died, this cooperative sort of expanded and then declined. But there was so much that she was trying to do with this cooperative. So first we had the farm, 680 acres of farmland. It began with this pig bank in 1969, in which folks would receive a litter from what they called the pig bank, and they would have to return like two female pigs back to the litter after they, you know, profited from the pigs. And 
and like 30,000 pounds of pork were distributed by 1975. 875 families were fed just from this pig bank. So the Freedom Farm really came out of this pig bank and her idea that food is a political weapon. Her quote specifically, food is a political weapon. And the reason she said that was that for registering to vote, not only do you have to endure like possible physical violence, but you weren't going to be able to get, if you were a poor folk, your food stamps. Folks could just deny you food stamps. And so they were literally, as she said, being starved out for voting. So she said, all we need is a pig in a garden. All we need is a pig in a garden to thrive. And so it began with this pig bank in 1968. And by 1969, they bought 40 acres. And by 1973, 1974, they had about 680 acres. And this is, we're just now here at the farm. And this is like, they had a cash crop that they were selling to, to, to fund the farm. They also had all kinds of vegetables, cucumbers, all kinds of greens, soybeans, potatoes that they were also allowing people to pull from free of charge. So that's just the farming of itself. It's almost like not fair to just simply call it a farm because in this place, she also ran an African garment store, a daycare center. She provided college scholarships. She had a sewing factory. Um, at one point, there was a storm in Chicago, left a lot of families homeless, and she sent up food for humanitarian aid. And then on top of that, she created about 68 houses. She built about 68 houses for families, for 73 families to live into. And all of this under the term, under the rubric of Freedom Farm. So, you know, she's like, she's taking in the span less than a decade almost in building a town with everything that she can, with all, with using everything that she can. And this was remarkable to me because in a lot of ways, it tells a different story about Hamer working outside of the electoral politics and the electoral system and, and the fight against segregation and the lawsuits that she waged against segregated schooling and all this stuff that we, we sort of tether her to. It just tells a different story where she's working on, a, on an entirely different plan altogether. And so... I mean, I was just overwhelmed by the sheer size, the sheer everything that she was able to accomplish and the philosophy behind the farm, the philosophy of belonging behind the farm. She let people live free of charge. She let three families live free of charge in, in homes. She just told them, you, you don't have to pay. You can't even afford the $3 for the food stamp. You don't have to pay to live in these houses. We're going to make sure as long as I can that you're good, that you're set. And when she died in 1977 through a battery of illnesses that she accrued just, you know, from like the strain that this put on her to try to keep the finances coming, the speeches, the, the traveling, then not only to mention like the other, the other illnesses she had already was, she was already suffering from when by 1977, things had sort of come to a, a real decline. She couldn't maintain the line of money coming in through donations. And by 1978, I would say, as far as the historical record goes, those houses were 
closed down because folks couldn't pay and the farm itself couldn't pay the mortgage. So they were sort of saddled in debt. And this 680 acres was, I say in the book, was reduced to the size of a burial plot because the only thing that remained of all of this by the time shortly after she died in 1977 was the plot Hamer was buried in. And so there's a lot of ways to see it. There's a lot of ways to see this story as a tragedy, having so many things going wrong. And I just I choose to see it differently. I choose to see it as a remarkable triumph and also in a remarkable experience of experimentation with social movement formation that gives us some incredible lessons about how we can be a part of a movement, how we can gather, how we can make space safe for ourselves in ways that don't reaffirm all the violences of capitalism. It is incredible history. It's also like incredibly recent. So the fact that it's not more well known is that's the real tragedy. <laughs> um, yeah. The idea of belonging in a way that like you're not a member because anyone can be a part of it. You don't have to like mm. pay to join was really mm. interesting. But since we're talking about like time and the present, the way you classify this chapter, this movement was something called pluripresence. Yeah, pluripresence. So let me start with a quote from Hamer. She said that, um, so she was living on this plantation owned by this guy named W.D. Marlowe in the early 1960s. And when she registered to vote, he kicked her off the plantation. And she said, when they kicked me off the plantation, they set me free. It's the best thing that could have happened. Now I can work for my people. But she also said she had nowhere to go. For me, I wanted to marry these two sentiments together. Setting me free with nowhere to go. First, let's just say poor presence is existing in multiple places at the same time. That's, that's just the, the, the definition of the word. It's not a coined word. It's an actual word. It means existing in multiple places or being in multiple places at the same time. And there's two ways we can get into this. And I want to bypass first her interventions into property, because I think this kind of brings it home in a more guttural way. I imagine her as existing in more than one place at the same time, because that's how she imagined herself. And let me give you an example of that. She would start her speeches in a really odd fashion. She would introduce herself by saying, whether she was in Wisconsin, trying to drum up money for, for support of the farm, or in this case, she was speaking with Malcolm X in New York. And she introduced herself after Malcolm X spoke. She said, my name is Fannie Lou Hamer, and I exist at 626 East Lafayette Street in Ruleville, Mississippi. I took that and I'm like, she, she is not in, at 626th Street in East Lafayette Street in, 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 in Ruleville, Mississippi. She is not there right now. If we think of it being impossible to be in two places at the same time. And it was just like, why does she keep restating this? Why does she keep restating this? I mean, of course, one way is just to say, look, I exist and I have a home. But another way is to take it to like the depth of her own intellect, which I don't think we do enough. And, and to say that, look, she is refusing to accord 
to the geographic binaries of up, down, present, absent, high, low that has been bequeathed to us from modernity. Like she's saying that she actually is pluripresent. She's opening up a space in which people can practice a kind of understanding of themselves that they are more than this individual self that capitalist striving and the individuality of all the ways that we think of productivity and production kind of impose on us and opening up a space to think of oneself as extending beyond just a single being. And this is just really important just in terms of the broader lessons of all the cooperatives in the book. In various ways, getting folks to understand their plenitude. And this is one way that I'm pointing that, that Hamer did it. And that radicality attaches directly to an abundance that we, we, we have what we need to have what we want. That was one of the models or lessons to me that came out of spe- specifically all of them, but particularly Hamer's Freedom Farm. We have what we need to have what we want. We just got to think of ourselves as people differently. It's a way of addressing like the scarcity of ourselves right. as, as an individual, as like a person on my own, like pluripresence right. expands that. Right. It's also a way of accounting for all the things that she was able to do in that span of time, basically building a town, the sheer like the span of it, that she sort of had to exist in more than one place at the same time. All of these ideas of pluripresence really began with, of course, these things too, but really began with the way she brought two ideas of property making to the farm together. Mutually exclusive ideas of property. She called the farm a cooperative. And technically, a cooperative is a business owned by everyone owned by its makers, a business that's all owned, you can say. She incorporated the farm as a nonprofit. Technically, a nonprofit is a business owned by no one. So she brought two mutually opposed ideas of of property being all owned and unowned together. And what I explore throughout that is the kind of space that sort of combustion, that sort of tension that she maintained allowed her to create a protected place that doesn't reinforce the, the, the violences of private property, a place in which we do have members and we also don't have members because anybody's free to join, a place that's radically open. There was a $3 membership fee and she would just waive it if you couldn't afford it. And she would say, you can be a member if you just decide to be a member. But what also that meant was you don't have to, you know, if you just like this is a deliberate pun, you don't have to buy in. We don't need from you. We don't need to possess you in order to for you to be a part of this and to help it flourish and grow. And all of this has to do with the way that she's navigating these tension between on the one extreme having no owners, and on the other extreme, having all owners. But it comes down simply to asking ourselves to suspend that there is 
one way of thinking about space, and that is high or low, absent or present. Of course, this this is like just just to think about space from a sort of radical black cartography lens. And also, there's a way of thinking about about property that isn't fixed in a single category, but that has to be fluid in order for a black woman in Mississippi who needs a space and, and other black people who needs a space that's protected without trying to have another space that is violent in terms of how it sets up, you know, the patriarchal patterns of private property. We don't have time for both, but we definitely have time for one more. We're talking about Hamer. I think we got to go back to her her buddy, her co-conspirator, Ella Baker. I think we got to go from Hamer to Baker right now. So, yeah, let's talk about Ella Baker, George Schuyler, and the Young Negroes Cooperative League and planned failure. So Baker, Ella Baker came up to New York in the 1920s, had just graduated Shaw University, summa cum laude, and she was just this fresh, open-minded, wanting to do, you know, some radical political stuff in New York. And somebody somebody at the Y would eventually introduce her to this guy who was the most popular Black journalist at the time, George Schuyler. And George Schuyler was a satirist. He was writing for the Pittsburgh Courier. And she comes up to Harlem and they meet. And Schuyler had already been saying, we need a cooperative. We need, we need a cooperative league that can actually kind of be an alternative economy to, to, to this capitalist system. And he, so he had already been talking in his column at the Pittsburgh Courier about cooperatives. Finally, when he teams up with Baker, they create, in, in 1930, they, start, they, they create a conference that's, that launches their Young Negroes Cooperative League. And Baker is the national director and Schuyler is the president. And this conference like was a riotous success. There were so many people who came to this conference that they didn't even have enough space in the building. And just to go through some of the stuff that they were able to do together, they helped found um, one of the longest lasting cooperative grocery stores in Buffalo, New York, um, longest lasting in the history of black cooperatives. They ran a cooperative farm in, in, in Pennsylvania. One of the big things that they did was they created these things called councils that used, you know, the council system, which is, which is a system of self-representation where you're, you're governing yourself, right? Councils, to speak plainly, were just groups of folks who would decide to study cooperatives and, and build a cooperative in their, in their city. And they created um, councils across 22 cities across the U.S. from California, all, all over, all over the country. And they did this in the span of like two years. Again, like it speaks to the abundance, just like, okay, when you, when you shift your mind to what we have now, like this abundance, look at how much we can do right now without having to fight on the government's door, without having to knock on the state's door for permission or funds, like what we can do with what we've got. That is what the sharp increase of productivity says to me not that oh it failed but wow look at everything you could do right now when you band together with everything you've got and you're just willing to share it okay so that so that's just sort of like on the ground level 
a lot of the stuff they did. I, and they, they did other things too. Like they were speaking to folks in the West Indies. Skyler went over to London to talk to the biggest cooperative store and business actually in, in England at the time to try to create some like connections across the pond. And so like, and also Ella Baker working with a cooperative bank or talking to a cooperative bank. In the West Indies, there's a broader Black diaspora component to this project. You were just talking about how much they were able to bring together so quickly in the moment and how that doesn't really seem like failure, which leads really interestingly into how you rethink time in this chapter through planned failure, which was really baked into this organization from the beginning. In their manifesto, okay, for the Cooperative League, and it was basically like a small flyer that said Young Negroes Cooperative League, and it was decorated with um, four leaf clovers around the around the sides. And you you know you could open it up as a flyer and just like read through it. And part of it was you know what are some of the rules that we're going to follow? And one of those rules, which just like shocked me like a lightning bolt, like shocked a lot of other people too in the black press. A condition that said no person under 16 or over 35 years of age shall be accepted for membership except by two-thirds vote. So Skyler the following year would be 36. So the, the president of the organization would have to, under this condition that they themselves came up with, relinquish his role. And the black press were like, because remember, this was actually a very exciting formation across the black press. So like people were commenting on it and and commenting on specifically this shocking rule that they came up with. Like, how are you going to lose your president right after it gets off the ground? Okay, And in fact, one column in his own paper, the Pittsburgh Courier, sort of like said tongue in cheek. The title was Founder of YNCL, Young Negroes Cooperatively Leave, plans to retire as soon as program is definitely launched. Like, like just sit with that for a second, right? <laughs> and so a lot of people have, a lot of folks, like w- one of his biographers focused on how this was just a problem in having a, a novelist try to create a social movement and just sort of thought about the the nonsensicalness of it all. And I was like, well, why don't we take it seriously and think about what this might say about the way we see Black social movements at large as failed plans? And, and maybe this is an invitation for us to reverse that idea that they're all failed plans and reverse it to planned failures. Because they were literally planning a kind of failure. And over and over again, you see what I'm calling a planned failure come into being. And that gets into the way we think of these movements through a tragic lens. Like they failed because they were blind to something. They failed because of some contingency they couldn't foresee that trapped them in the end. If we could only avoid those, you know, Um, but we can't. So like, Well, if you think of this in terms of comedy instead of tragedy, if you just put a different lens on it, then what you're saying is, one, you've got to embrace the crises, right? Like comedy comes out of these unexpected crises, but it also comes out of things that are bigger than what was before, not because they were better, but just because they were different. 
And so comedy is also this place where you sort of enjoy a kind of plenitude that would otherwise look like a kind of fall, okay? And so when he's planning the failure of this leadership body, what he's also opening up is a whole new way of thinking about the fluidity of leadership, decentralized leadership, a way, a new way for folks to participate and sort of embrace the uncertainty of a movement rather than sort of like harden it into a hierarchy of leaders that had been happening before. Okay. And then he also says that, look, this is the most insidious thing. These, these cooperatives, he says, is the most insidious thing ever loosed against the government racket. And it is anarchic. And I am an ar- anarchist. That's, those are his literal words. And then when you turn to Ella Baker, you see her also questioning the legitimacy of the state as well. And so there's a way to see her as not just somebody who, again, wanted to expand the voter counts or the representation in in government, but also someone who is questioning the very legitimacy of the state as such. And in that way, you could call her an anarchist, like anarchy just being the interrogation of state structure. So in, in this way, they meet. And, and Baker does a whole series of things, oh, that sort of um, takes the idea of planned failure into, into different directions that Schuyler himself couldn't do on his own. And the first thing is we've got to talk about her group-centered leadership, which is also, if you think about it, kind of a paradox, right? Like how do you center a group, like the very thing that has no center because it's a group. You know, there's just this radical idea of Baker's insistence that we don't want any more charismatic leaders. That hasn't worked. One, it's too conspicuous. It's too easily felled. Because one, one of the things about having a hardened leader is that it's easy to knock them down. And the other thing, too, it doesn't speak to the people. So the only way that Schuyler was able to really take his cooperative off the ground was when he asked Ella Baker or when Ella Baker teamed up with him to be the national director and speak to the people. Because though he was the most popular Black journalist at the time, he couldn't get enough support to make that conference the success it became without Ella Baker doing that hard on the ground work and keeping it group centered rather than charismatic or individual leadership centered. And so she was like, not just his protege, she was his teammate. And and I, and I would go further, it would not be possible for them to have done the things that they were able to do and reach the people that they reached without her idea of group-centered leadership to like appreciate the group as a group, right? And so like she's just doing all of this like philosophical labor at the same time she's doing all this activist labor, which comes down to rethinking Black social movements, not as failed plans, but as planned failures. And it's a switch there from tragedy to comedy. It's so interesting going into something like this is not going to last, but let's do let's let's do something. Let's make something now in the time that we have 
and shouldn't last as such yeah and shouldn't I mean, because one of the other things, too, is that the way that we sort of appraise um, the success of a social movement is to talk about how long it endured, its longevity. And so what they're doing here is saying that's not going to be the rubric. That's not going to be the mark of success for us. Longevity is not what we need. Fluidity is what we need. A a rolling non-hierarchical expansion of the people is what we need, right? And that then returns us back to a new idea, a new way of thinking about the generativity of working in the present in this way. Yeah, definitely. And I want to talk about what these cooperatives tell us about social movements now. I think there's been a shift in terms of the work that Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and various other founders of Black Lives Matter have articulated in the way we think about leadership, in the way we think about gathering together as a force, a move from a leaderless movement in which there are no leaders to a leaderful movement wow. where we're all leaders. One of the things that the Black cooperatives forecasted was like a fluid and continuously evolving and revolving way of creating a movement. Cooperatives, if you just think historically, they, they, they declined in the 70s. Their biggest time of flourishing happened, ironically, in the Great Depression. In 1930s, more Black cooperatives, more cooperative activity took place than at any other time in American history. That's amazing, right? And I think that it speaks to us now in a time of like this deep uncertainty where we feel like we're losing so much. I think what it says to us is at the time that we feel lowest, we might have access to more abundance than we've ever thought we could. And and that that also speaks to now this the sort of you know, you have Soul Fire Farm, a cooperative farm that is coming out of New York, one of the more popular and more well-known cooperative farms that are happening today. You've got Cooperation Jackson that's trying to take the legacy of Freedom Farm and expand it. You've got a lot of different emergences of various cooperatives that are, so it's kind of like a resurgence that's happening now. And I think it's a resurgence out of a place of recognizing we have to tap into the abundance that we are when we come together and lay down this idea of ourselves as deprived people and lay down this idea of ourselves as needing to argue and, and, and fight with the state and get state recognition for the things we need, which is never going to be the things we need. You know? <laughs> and so on a whole, it's an invitation to think of social movement as a vast experimentation. And I think it's happening. I think it's happening now. There's so many different calls for mutual aid. Mutual aid has almost become sort of a tagline. You know, let, let's ban our goods together. Let's ban our resources together. It doesn't matter what political side of the spectrum you come on. Like you don't have to subscribe to a political doctrine in order for us to do this. And 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 I think that kind of that kind of thinking is taking off again. And I think it's the kind of legacy that the cooperatives speak to us. We have what we need to have what we want. Thank you so much. 
Absolutely, Brooklyn. This was such a pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you for having me on this awesome show. What more is there to say? We have what we need to have what we want. Because when we come together and are willing to address issues right now, we have more than we think we do. As always, if you like this show, at this point you've probably told every single person you know. But keep doing that. Review this show. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at We the Black People Pod. And all power to all people, y'all. Yeah.